Hi, I'm Brian Townsend from Paro in Utah. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. A couple weeks ago, we were at the Bumbershoot Music and Arts Festival in Seattle, Washington. It was a really fantastic time, and we had the chance to talk with a lot of really awesome people, including the brilliant author and book designer, Chip Kidd. Chip Kidd's two comic novels, The Cheese Monkeys and The Learners, were acclaimed by both audiences and critics but he's probably best known as one of the most famous designers in the country for designing a very particular sort of object, books. He designed many of the most iconic books of the last 20 to 25 years, including Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park and all of David Sedaris' books. A number of authors, like Sedaris, insist that only Kidd designed their covers. Kidd is also a well-known comics enthusiast who's compiled several books about comics, including a monograph of Batman memorabilia from the 1950s and 60s. Let's go to the stage of Bumbershoot and my interview with Chip Kidd. Uh, Chip, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, before, we, before we go on, I would just like to thank the studio audience for agreeing to come here today in the nude. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's just made it a lot Radio more really comfortable for me. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Um, Chip, I, you know, I, I was thinking so hard about how, where to start off, and I noticed in every photograph of you I'd seen, including rather old photographs, and uh, in this representation, I presume, of one of the characters in your book on, on the cover of The Learners and on your face right now, are a very distinctive set of eyewear. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of like an architect always has a set of eyewear. Is that like a rule? Only for... less pretentious. Yours or those? You have the most pretentious ones? Well, no, I meant that theirs were more pretentious. Than <laughs> <laughs> At least they're not like a, you know, the kind that, that has a spring that clips it to your nose. I think that's probably as pretentious I have as those too. Okay. <laughs> So this is a choice. You're a, you're an, you're a, a man of uh, refined aesthetic tastes. There must be a reason why you've always chosen this. Yes, and it's called Robin's Mask. <laughs> are you sincere in saying that? Sort of. I think I think it's subliminal. I think these are about as close as you can get to like walking around with Robin's Mask and and not getting arrested. Uh, when when did you when did you when did you commit yourself so deeply to Batman? I think I was two. Two. Yes. How? And uh, the, uh, the Batman TV show had just come out, and I was two years old, and my brother was two years older than me. He was four. And uh, it's pretty easy to memorize the words to na 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 when you're two. <laughs> <laughs> were, you, were you a... Um, 
were you a comic book collector past uh, past childhood? Were you a were you a comic book person as a as like an adolescent or a young adult? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was that awkward phase from between like seventh grade through senior year of high school when I sort of had to like keep it to myself. But then, then when you get in, into college, uh, you can sort of wave your freak flag a little bit more. Did so you? Did. Were you? Did you at the time have the idea that your um, art pursuits would lead into uh, something related to comic books, or or what? Um, no, not really. I, I I was just thrilled to be able to sort of bridge that gap. Um, the book that you were mentioning was called Batman Collected. And uh, it was basically the book that I always wanted to find at the bookstore when I was eight and I never could, which is basically a huge compendium of all the Batman stuff that they had made, mostly in the 60s. And um, so once I sort of got my act together, as it were, as a graphic designer, I've been at um, Alfred A. Knopf. Uh, this October, I will have been there uh, 22 years and counting. And um, I've designed book covers for them, and it's part of Random House. And uh, I approached DC Comics, and I said, nobody's done this book. Somebody should do it. Did you... Um, excuse me. Did you... Um, when you were... Uh, uh, when you... <laughs> You'd think I wasn't a professional radio host at this point. <laughs> You'd think I hadn't done this thousands of times. No, I, was, was the fascination... <laughs> I have it now! <laughs> this is just public radio artifice that I'm contractually required to add to all of my questions. Uh, by the time you were sincerely pursuing art, and you entered college as an art major, so I, I presume that you were pretty serious a, a, yes. about art by the time you were a teenager. Yes. Um, how much of your fascination with comic books was about aesthetics, and how much of it was about the the kind of traditional things that, that people get wrapped up in comic books about, which is, you know... Um, uh, fantasies and, and alternate lives and well, but aesthetics like that. Is, aesthetics is part of that. I mean, Batman just looks really cool. Batman looks like a demon, but he's a good guy who gets to look like a bad guy. So that's you know that's aesthetics, even if you don't think of it that way. Um, but uh, I, I think I probably would have wanted to become a cartoonist if I could draw well enough, and I couldn't. So um, I kind of uh, did an end run around that and became a graphic designer. So, I mean, there are graphic designers who can draw really well, but um, I'm not one of them. So, uh, but what you can do is work with illustrators and come up with an idea for, hey, I think, I think Charles Burns should draw me looking freaked out on the cover of my book, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You, you write in, um, in the big monograph a little bit about the choice to become a graphic design major. And, and at your school, you went to uh, Penn State, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. You, uh, the graphic design department, quote-unquote, was a tiny part of the art department. I, if I'm remembering correctly, 18 graduates uh, in a given year. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty tough hill to climb. And I can't, I don't, I sincerely do not believe that you only did that because you weren't good enough at drawing for something else. So what was it that attracted you to, to doing graphic design specifically? Um, all, I mean, all, all sorts of things. I mean, first of all, frankly, um, it's a viable career. It's a viable job that happened to uh, have something to do with creating, with creating something. So 
you know, um, the, the, the painters, the people in the painting department would all laugh at us because they thought that we were prostitutes and, and we would laugh at them because we thought that they were just idiots and, um, and that uh, we actually had a, a viable future uh, making creative stuff. Um, and, you know, I would, I would say, just slightly off topic, I was totally charmed and surprised here today by this thing called flat stock. Do you know about this? It's amazing. And um, it's over in the Fisher Pavilion. If you haven't been in, if you're interested, it goes till 8.30. I'm doing this, like, commercial for them. But it's, it's if, all... If you happen to be listening on the radio, if you can get your hands on some plane tickets and a time machine... Yes. Go backwards. Now, they, they do South by Southwest. They do a couple of these festivals. And, um, but basically, it's, it's silkscreen printing, silkscreen uh, silk printed posters for bands and shows and all this kind of thing. That was the kind of stuff that was going on at Penn State at the time in the graphic design de department. Um, I consider myself very lucky to be pretty much the last generation of people who learned graphic design without a computer. Um, I highly recommend it, although it's impossible now today. Um, but we learn to kind of think with our hands, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, but silkscreen printing, letterpress printing, um, there's something very sort of viscerally rewarding about doing that and getting these instant results that you, know, that you did uh, on, your, on your own. So that was very much alive at Penn State at the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was... The, Penn, I, I mean, I love Penn State, but it's like the world's biggest high school. It's huge. Um, they have a prom queen, you know, for, <laughs> in, in college. But, um, but it's this big, big school. So if there's like 40,000 kids just on the main campus, they still will accept 18 people a year into the graphic design program. That's it. And so it's very, very competitive. And the teachers are terrific. One of the words that kept coming up, uh, both in the monograph, and I think it may even have come up in, in the learners, that was new to me was the idea of a solution. Um, and I wonder if that was part of the appeal of graphic design, that uh, unlike, say, fine art, it is presented to you as a problem in need of a solution. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, it is problem solving. And... Uh, you know, if, if you sit me in front of a blank canvas and just say, go ahead, do whatever you want, I will just stare at it. And then I will stare at it some more, and then I will start to cry. <laughs> and then I will start to drink and cry harder. Um, I just, I need a problem to solve. I need a directive of, you know, what should the uh, logo for the Seattle Times look like? Uh, what should the logo for the Seattle Center look like? Okay, that's that's something that I can that a graphic designer can like dig their their uh, teeth into and figure out. Yes, I think that's a, that's a big, um, very much motivational to me. Have you have you tried the other side? Have you tried to you know just sit at home and make a thing that's apropos of nothing? It's sitting on your desk. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I meant a, uh, a visual arts uh, well, sort of thing. I'm, 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 I'm only this. sort of half kidding. I mean, the, the writing is, you know, you're starting with a blank piece of paper. And, uh, I, you know, this is my second novel. My first novel is called The Cheese Monkeys. And it is based on my experience at Penn State and being at, at a design, in a design school. Um, that's what the narrator is basically going through what I went through in a sort of condensed, funnier version. Um, but, yeah, I mean, s sitting down in front of a blank screen or, or a blank typewriter page, I mean, that, you know, that, 
it's, it's, it can be pretty daunting to turn that into something that somebody is going to be hopefully worth somebody's time. You you sort of ended up uh, doing book design uh, almost out of happenstance, uh, at least as you present it yes. as you presented in the monograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- tell me about how how you ended up in the field. It would, I mean, really, it's actually a pretty boring story, although, you know, I was glad at the time because I couldn't have handled anything t- any more exciting. But I, I came to New York City. I knew I wanted to do graphic design there. And the first concrete job that I was offered was at Random House designing book covers. And and I thought, well, I'll, I'll give this a shot and uh, do this for a year or two and then move on to a graphic design firm doing all sorts of other things. And like I said, it'll be 22 years in October. It's, it's a really particular sort of design. And I, you've done some designs. And in fact, there are, there are some things reproduced in this book that are uh, in other fields. I mean, you, uh, you design packaging for a John Spencer Blues Explosion album, mm-hmm. for example. Um, what is it particularly that's uh, that's interesting or satisfying to you about uh, book design that's kept you in this field for that 20 years? Well, I, I do believe that, I mean, even though you just mentioned I did the John Spencer album and I did Paul Simon's last album, which was called Surprise. Um, but despite all of that, really, I mean, for the last, I'd say, 15 years or so, book covers... Um, hold a sort of place in the world of graphic design that album covers used to in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, and it's, it's it's kind of the last vestige of a creative uh, thing that you can make that's going to have a, a distinctive visual presence in a bookstore, um, on somebody's shelf, etc. You know, you walk into a into a record store, if, if that even happens anymore, and, and it's hard to, to see anything there that has a distinctive visual presence in terms of a CD cover or something like that. Do you think you would get the same out of, uh, I, I mean, obviously all, all creative products uh, in the United States anyway end up being products, but do you think you would get the same satisfaction if you were designing the new Quisp? Uh, cereal or well, well, I would, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. Uh, um, no, uh, the, the book de- book designers we're in a pretty rarefied part of of the field. I mean, the thing about graphic design is uh, that people either understand or don't. Is absolutely everything has to be designed. If it's man made, no matter what it is, it has to be designed, has to be figured out. Um, whether it's the lettering on your coffee cup or, or around your lariat or whatever. Um, Just and, for the listeners out there, I have a cowboy-style lariat that says my name in bold lettering on it. Yeah, it's. I love it. Thank you. Um, I try and do. I, you know, you have to have a multi-pronged attack in today's difficult information economy. So I do the radio interviews and a little bit of trick roping on the side. Mm-hmm. And spurs are awesome. Thank you. Um, I forgot what we were talking about. Oh, well, actually, this is the sort of sad thing. Um, it's like there are certain things that, that I would never want to, like, take my time to design because they get crumbled up and thrown away or whatever, whether it's a quisp box or, or something. But but people have to do that. And I, you know, sometimes, you know, we're becoming a more paperless society, more paperless society. I mean, I'm a real advocate for the book. I, you know, the book has survived for a long, 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 long time. And um, there are advocates for ebooks and this kind of stuff, and I think that that sort of has its small place in in society. But um, you know, I want a book. I want a thing I can carry around. And and uh, 
The reason that it hasn't gone the way of, of music via the MP3 is that um, music started as pure sound to begin with. And, uh, and then in the 20th century, it became a thing to have. And the technology's evolved to the point where now it's pure sound again. And so now we don't have to buy that thing. We can just buy the sound. Well, that's, that books were always a thing. Books were always an object. And, um, you know, it's so far so good. I mean, it's, it's frankly, it's the most efficient piece of technology to deliver the information to you that it needs to deliver. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Chip Kidd. His most recent novel is The Learners, and we'll talk with him about it in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. The Sound of Young America is live in Seattle at Seattle Sketchfest on Saturday, September 27th. If you live in the Pacific Northwest and you don't come, you're probably an idiot. More information online at sketchfest.org. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. This week's program was recorded live at the Bumbershoot Music and Arts Festival in Seattle, Washington. My guest is the book designer and comic novelist Chip Kidd. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your, your second book, which you re- released earlier this year, The Learners, which is... Um, in some ways, a uh, in some ways, a, well, in most ways, a sequel to your first book, but it's not a, not at all dependent upon your first book. Yeah, it's the unsequel. It's the episode two. It was it, it, it's set in a, a world that I'm interested to hear why you chose. It's it's set in uh, in the world of advertising, kind of small advertising. Uh, at in the early 1960s. In fact, it's in in a funny way. It has a similar setting to the uh, the TV series Mad Men, um, although from a different perspective. What what is it about that point, and and why advertising as opposed to a, as in your experience some quote unquote purer form of design? Well, um, it, it's funny because I've been working on that for like seven years, and then it comes out like right at the time that that <laughs> Mad Men is is you know, so popular and deserves to be. And so, like, and all the reviews were weaving them together, whereas, um, you know, just the idea that it's advertising in 1961, that's pretty much where the similarity stops uh, because my book takes place in New Haven, Connecticut and not in Manhattan. Um, But um, really the... um, I, I took Psychology 101 as a freshman at, at Penn State, and we learned about these things called the Mil- uh, Stanley Milgram uh, obedience experiments. And that completely changed. I was just not the same after I, after I saw about these experiments. And, and uh, these took place at Yale in 1961, and um, I wanted to write a novel about it ever since that. And so... Um, basically, if you don't know what these are, um, they were ingeniously conceived. He, Milgram's family had um, escaped the Nazis, basically, in, in the 30s and come to the Bronx from Poland just in time. And he always speculated what would have happened had they stayed. So he, um, he wanted to basically create a microcosm of uh, Nazi Germany in a laboratory in New Haven, Connecticut. And so what he did was he um, solicited uh, solicited in an ad in the New Haven Register paper for people to um, volunteer to become, uh, to be for this um, uh, study of memory, 
of memory and learning is what they thought they were doing. So they would answer the ad, they would come to the lab, and uh, there would be somebody else who answered the ad there as well, and the lab guy would come out with his coat and his clipboard and say, okay, uh, you're going to draw these lots. One of you is going to be the teacher, and one of you is going to be the learner. So you would draw your, um, your lot, and it would say teacher. And the other guy would draw the learners. Okay, Mr. Learner, we're going to hook you up to this machine that's going to administer shocks to you, electric shocks. And, and uh, so, teacher, you come over here. We're going to show you the shock board, and we're going to start at 5 volts, and we're going to go up to 450 volts. And you are going to ask this person uh, word pairs, sort of like the game Concentration. And if they get it right, you keep going. If they get it wrong, they just get a little shock. And uh, we're going to start at 5 volts. And they and say, what, what was it, painful but not fatal? Is that yes, what they say? they're going to be painful but not fatal. And so, not um, fatal? Well, anybody that knows anything about electricity knows that, you know, about up to 200 volts, that that's it. Uh, yeah. and, this, and this went up to 450. And so, you know, it would, you'd go along, and this, this other guy who you could not see, he was in another room, but you could hear him, he just kept getting them wrong. So that's okay. Don't worry. Just keep going. Keep going up the shock board and keep shocking the sky, uh, because uh, it's it's Yale and we'll take the responsibility if anything happens. And so okay, so you keep going and and uh, basically what they were the other guy was a plant and what what they were and there was a two way mirror. They were watching the whole thing, and so they were basically studying you, Mr. Teacher, to see how far you would go. Um, you know, would you kill this person just in the name of science? Because, of course, we're here at Yale, are under control, and this is a very important experiment for us, blah, blah, blah. And after a year and a half and hundreds of uh, participants and all different kinds of controls that they put on the experiment, uniformly 65% of the participants went all the way up to the end of the shock board to 450 volts and killed the other guy. I so, and, and Milgram made this like lo-fi 10-minute documentary film of it. Um, it's not commercially available, but we, you can see it in a classroom, which I did. And at, the, at, at that time, I was sort of deciding what I wanted to be. That, and, and it was the design of these experiments that so intrigued me and, and basically played a part in, in the, the idea that, okay, I want to be a designer. In a way, it was like that finding solutions Thing. Yes, he was finding. He was trying to explain the Holocaust, which is pretty impossible. But it, you know, in a in a small way, he kind of did it, and it's just amazing. And nobody nobody really got hurt. Um, so anyway, I the Learners is set in 1961 because it centers around these experiments. And I I wondered what if I was the the young stringer kid that just got hired by this advertising agency, and my first job is oh design this little ad for the Yale psych department. They want to recruit people for an experiment. And so, you know, that's, you know, that, that's something, that's an entry-level little thing that you can do and work with them and, and design the ad. And so the narrator does, and then he becomes, he, he becomes obsessed with like, well, if I'm designing this ad to recruit people for this experiment, I should take the experiment myself. And so he does, and um, anonymously. And it really, really screws him up. And uh, and then the third part of the book is his dealing with this. So clearly, I mean, this has no real parallel with Mad Men whatsoever. But and also clearly, it's a really funny book. Yes, um, we should you know clarify. What? Seriously, the, the reviews were like, "This was a laugh riot." <laughs> I'm like, "Wow, 
You either well, didn't read it or you're sick. There, there is a, the, that really, and I don't want to get too far down the line of the book and start revealing all the plot points, but there's this really interesting impetus. The, the push for this is the idea of someone uh, actually having to address culpability uh, for their advertising, for this design piece, for the, for the fact that their work worked. In in other words, mm-hmm. um, are you are you ever are you concerned about you having some kind of responsibility for for work that well, you do? Well, this is what I, this was what I was saying. Um, in that sense, I'm I'm so lucky that I, you know I'm not trying to get you to vote for whoever or whatever. I'm trying to get you to read Cormac McCarthy's new book. That's my job, and I'm I, I think that's a really lucky position to be in. And uh, I don't think it's such a bad thing to try and get you to read. Cormac McCarthy's new book. Um, now, would I design a, a package for Camel cigarettes? I don't know. That would be pretty cool. I don't smoke. Do I want to get other people to smoke? So there is this sort of vibe, you know. There's and and within the graphic design profession, there's a lot of debate about you know designing packaging for booze or whatever. That you know it's kind of cool, but it's like mm, I don't know, you know. Uh, but I'm not really in that in that category of, of. I certainly would not design something that I was morally against. Uh, I've turned down a few jobs by. Um, you know, like financial guru people who who've written books to get people to invest their money, this or that. And I'm like, no. But th- but I'm not put in that position very often. Do you do you, are you in a position at this point that um, you actually get to pick things that you'd like to endorse, or your or is your output so monumental? I mean, you do so many of these things that uh, you're, you're just kind of picking things out of something that you might or might not like that much uh, and just, just picking out the pieces that intrigue you or, or excite you. Um, well, I've, I've sort of gotten to the point where I think people understand like what I might be interested in in terms of designing this or that. Like, like I said, every ne- like I was surprised that somebody would want me to design a financial guru cover. That's just not my thing. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know when you say endorse, I mean, I don't really like do ads for this. No, I, but I mean, I, it's not, I don't mean to say that you're creating book covers that say, uh, chip kid designs for, and then underneath in small type, John Updike. Right. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to suggest oh, that. Oh, if shit. I could. <laughs> you are though. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that, uh, that idea of endorsement comes up. You are, I mean, we joke that you are as big as it gets for a design guy, um, but it, it's funny that in, it, it feels like in, that, uh, in this period of time, I mean, it feels to me, maybe it's just because I've become more of a grown-up, that design has gotten a, uh, a has become even more prominent in our culture. Um, it, do, you, do you see that from within the design world, that all of a sudden people who aren't, in, who aren't designers are more deeply engaged in the idea of design? Well, I'd, I'd like to think that they are, but I th- there's design and there's design. I, you, I think people are hyper-aware about clothing, for example. Who, who designed this or that, whether it's you know, sportswear or haute couture or whatever. I mean, that... You know, and and look at these TV shows that that focus on this stuff. Um, but you know, in terms of like who actually designed the iPod, 
Um, no, I mean, you, it's assumed that, that Steve Jobs did it, and he didn't. <laughs> um, it was somebody else. Uh, but so, you know, again, it, it's like um, people within the design industry who are really into it know pretty much who's done what. Um, but I, I don't see a, like a wider audience for, for graphic design, for people understanding. You know, the, that's the other thing I should note about book covers that, that is uh, the, the, the only reason I'm sitting here right now to these bewildered people who are waiting for the band. Um, <laughs> is um, The great thing about uh, book jacket design is because on the back flap it says jacket design by Chip Kid. And that is industry standard. Book cover designers get credit for their work. That's very, very important. Most graphic designers don't. The guy who designed the iPod doesn't. It doesn't say on the iPod package. That's Steve Jobs, right? Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> um, so so that's, um, that's been a great sort of you know, rewarding thing for me is that I do actually get credit for what I do. And there aren't many other graphic designers that do. And I think that's why also... The, um, the people people don't know. How would they know? Um, because it's not it's not readily uh, that information isn't readily available. Well, as far as we're concerned, credit is due. Uh, Chip Kid, <laughs> <laughs> you like that? You like how I wrap that up? Uh, Chip Kid, thank you so much for being on the San Diego thank Mario. You. Such thank a pleasure you. to have you. Chip Kid's novels are The Cheese Monkeys and most recently The Learners. You can find out more about his work at goodisdead.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music, written and performed by Dan Grayson, with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. This week's program from Bumbershoot was produced, directed, and edited in part by Nick White from Chicago. My intern is Casey O'Brien. Here at the house, the dog's name is Coco, the brown dog. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org where you will find all of our programs and lots of other stuff. And hey, I hope you're planning on joining us at MaxFunCon, the first ever MaximumFun.org convocation of things that are awesome. It's online at MaxFunCon.com. It's already three-quarters sold out, so if you want to come, now is the time to register. We'll see you later this week on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org.